This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Good afternoon. Thanks to the Carter team for the invitation. It's lovely to be back in San Diego. Um, Okay. What I want to try and do today is convince you that uh, those people working on the evolution of human behaviour, particularly archaeologists, should be trying to adopt uh, ethnology as a core method. I'm going to suggest that ethnology should be essential to archaeology. Some of the things that you will have heard about, radiocarbon dating, isotope analysis, zooarchaeology. Um, I'm not the first person to make this argument. There have been several cases made in the literature, but they've been largely ignored. And I think the case for embracing ethnology as an archaeological method is actually uh, much stronger now than it was in the past. So this is briefly the roadmap. I'm going to just define ethnology, give you a quick brief history of ethnology, look at ethnology and archaeology, and then three recent examples, and then end with some conclusions. So what is ethnology? Uh, There are different definitions, but I'm going to suggest it's the comparison of traits Um, behavioural traits mainly, from multiple ethno-historically documented, so there's recent groups, to answer scientific questions about human behaviour. It's one of the two major methods that have been developed within social cultural anthropology. The other one is ethnography. So ethnography is the sort of intensive study of a single group of people, and ethnology is basically extracting information from a bunch of different ethnographies and comparing them. So it's comparison amongst groups. You'll see lots of different synonyms in the literature for ethnology, comparative ethnology, comparative anthropology, comparative analysis, the comparative method, cross-cultural analysis, cross-cultural comparison. So it's it's referred to in a a lot of different ways. There are are a couple of different forms of ethnology. So there's just sort of documenting behavioural variation amongst populations. And then there's also testing causal hypotheses using cross-cultural data. So that might be between looking at relationships between different behavioural traits or between behavioural traits and environmental traits. Um, the history of ethnology has been described as chequered, um, and I, I think that's pretty accurate. So the first formal analysis goes back uh, to the late 19th century, uh, and one of the, the founders of anthropology, Edward Burnett Tyler, who published uh, what now appears to be the first formal ethnological analysis in 1889, where he basically was looking at, he, he called these things adhesions, we would think about them as, as statistical associations, between uh, customs pertaining to marriage and customs pertaining to descent in 350 ethno-historically documented groups. But this study had very little impact, as far as we can tell, um, You have to scroll forward 25 years to find the next sort of ethnological studies. And there we find sort of an interest on either side of the Atlantic. So there's a group of very early sociologists publish a a, a monograph using ethnological analysis uh, led by this guy Hobhouse. And then on this side of the Atlantic, uh, actually in in this state, uh, Krober, Alfred Krober, a very famous anthropologist, started a a program of collecting ethnological data. But again, these studies, there's, in the case of Krober, quite a bit of data collected, but very few actual analytical results published. So it it seems, again, that they have very little impact. 
it's not until the 1930s, early 1940s, that um, ethnology starts to, to take off as, a, as an approach, uh, primarily led by uh, this guy on the, on the top left. Here's Pete Murdoch, uh, initially at Yale, later at Pittsburgh. Uh, his group that he led had a, a focus on uh, causal hypothesis testing, but also perhaps much more importantly for us in, in terms of data standardization. And from the sort of late 30s through to the late 60s, he was at the forefront of developing sort of data standardization, improvements in method in terms of data collection. Um, however, so there's this period of, of sort of uh, flourishing of ethnology, you know, uh, ending with the, the creation of this standard cross-cultural sample in the, in the late 60s. By the 70s, anthropologists start falling out of love with, um, with ethnology. Okay, and you can see, here's a Google engram. It's hard to sort of find ways of illustrating this, but here are, here are a couple. Here's a, one, this is engram for these two terms, ethnography and ethnology. And you can see, um, you know, ethnography becomes dramatically more um, prevalent in the literature versus ethnology from the, the 1970s to the present. Um, we can look at what's going on in terms of the last 10 years of publications. <coughs> And if you do a web of science search, what you basically find is that in, in relation to anthropological research, there's probably something like you know, less than 1% of papers that are involved in, in or that are involving anthropological analysis are using cross-cultural approaches. Um, this one really surprised me. So this is a, a journal that was uh, established by Pete Murdoch in uh, the early 60s, discontinued in, in 2012. If you go through the, the, the papers from the last 10 years, what you find is very few of them are actually carrying out ethnological analysis, ironically. Okay. Um, and now, for, for a lot of anthropologists and, and people observing anthropologists, ethnology is basically a synonym for social cultural anthropology. You can see the, the shift here in these definitions from the Oxford English Dictionary. Basically, this... If you read the bottom one here, ethnology, the branch of knowledge concerned with human society and culture and its development. I mean, it's basically the same as the, 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 the definitions of social anthropology and different from the one in 2002 where the, the one in 2002 stresses the comparison of people and the differences amongst them. So there's, there's an interesting uh, decline that's gone on in, in, in anthropological interest in ethnology. However, <laughs> other disciplines have gone to town with ethnology. So uh, if we look at um, cross-cultural research, another big journal in, in using this approach, now the majority of people publishing cross-cultural research are psychologists. And I, I, was, much, uh, I was very surprised uh, to find that business studies scholars and economists are actually using almost the same rate as anthropologists. So you know, it's declined in interest in anthropology but expanded in, in other disciplines. If we just turn to look at archaeology and ethnology... Um, there's sort of an entwined relationship between the two. So a lot of the early figures in archaeologists were also really interested in, in ethnology. People like Henry Christie, John Lubbock, and, and particularly Pitt Rivers. They were interested in, uh, in collecting ethnograph ethnographic objects and using those to interpret the archaeological record and also to reconstruct the evolution of, of culture. Um, and that spilled over into museums. So Pitt Rivers... 
is the guy, his, his collection ended up in this museum in Oxford, the Pitt Rivers Museum, and it's this peon to, to ethnology and archaeology, so it's just full of, fantastically full of objects, both uh, ethnographic ones and archaeological ones. Obviously, we've got the, the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology in, in Harvard, and our um, departmental museum at SFU is also the Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology. So there's this museum linkage, and we find if we look at the literature, some of the leading archaeologists of the last 50 years have used uh, ethnology on occasion. Okay, but um, ethnology is, is still not viewed as a key archaeological technique. Okay, so there's this quote here from uh, Smith and Peregrine: Although a large number of material indicators of human behaviour have been identified, comparative ethnology has yet to develop into an important archaeological tool. That's from 2012, and that, and that holds uh, to the present. It's rarely discussed in introductory textbooks. It's rarely employed in archaeological research in the in the last 10 years. So it's, it's something like again less than one percent of studies. And I want to suggest to you that this is unfortunate. And I'm going to give you three recent examples uh, that have a, a human evolution flavour to them. And these are three papers, or three studies, rather, uh, that I've been involved with. The first one was one that we published, um, one of my oh, colleagues and a couple of our students published in the Journal of Anthropological Archaeology. And we were interested in this question of clothing uh, use by Neanderthals and early modern humans. There's been a, quite a bit of discussion about Neanderthal clothing use, uh, how they coped with the, the cold conditions in Europe. Previous work had focused on sewing technology, lice DNA, and thermal modelling. And we, we were interested in what the animal bones that we found at archaeological sites could tell us about Neanderthal clothing and the, and the similarities and difference with modern human clothing. So we carried out this three-part analysis... The first uh, uh, step in analysis, we went to a data set that had been pulled together in the late 90s by a team at Cambridge led by Cheard Van, Van Andel. And this is a, a zoarchaeological data set. So it has presence and absence of different taxa, uh, uh, lots and lots of different archaeological sites in Europe that date to approximately 60 to 20,000. And we identified the different mammalian uh, families that are present in those, in those uh, different sites. We then went to a, uh, a really fantastic online resource called the EHREF uh, World Cultures Database. And we, it's, it's a keyword searchable database. And we went through and we searched for those mammalian taxa, those mammalian families, uh, in, and their use in cold weather clothing in mid and high latitude groups. Okay, so we came up with a list of taxa that are used for cold weather clothing in the recent period. And then we went back to the archaeological remains and we looked at the frequencies, the differences in frequency of occurrence between Neanderthal sites and modern human sites. Okay, so this three-part analysis. And the results, were, I think, were pretty interesting. The first one is that there's clear evidence of cold-weather clothing-linked animals on both Neanderthal and early modern human sites. But there are some interesting differences. And the most in interesting of those differences, I think, is that we found that there are significantly more modern human sites with canids, so uh, you know, dog family uh, remains, and also mustelids, so things like the wolverine. On, uh, so modern humans seem to have many more mustelids and canids on their site than Neanderthals. Uh, and when we went back to the, the ethnographies, what's really interesting about that is, is that um, 
hunter-gatherers in particular, when, when they're making cold-weather clothing, the canids and mustelids are particularly useful, their fur, for producing ruffs. Okay, so the hoods on parkas and also the ruffs around the hands. And, and these are things that are, um, there's, there's re- other research suggesting these things are, are very good for preventing frostbite. So it, it looks like there might be a difference in the complexity of the clothing between Neanderthals and modern humans that's arising out of this or suggested by this analysis. The second uh, example is a, is a study that we did, um, again, same colleague, different student, uh, Journal of Paleolithic Archaeology, this one. And we were interested in, in what contemporary groups or recent groups can tell us about the use of fire. Now, this, you know, this uh, issue about the, the origins and, and early history of fire use in modern humans is hotly debated. Uh, there's lots of questions that we are still uncertain about, things like when does fire use start? You know, could Neanderthals create fire at will? You know, that's before we get to very complex questions like what's the cost of acquiring fuel and, and so on. And we think that we need to know more about how uh, recent hunter-gatherer use fire in order to, to make some progress on these issues. So we, we went to the, the EHRAF World uh, Cultures Database again and searched for mentions of fire-related activities by recent hunter-gatherers. And we collected data on, on three different sets of variables. And we, we were pretty cautious about how we approached this. Um, what we found was we got data for, for 93 different groups across the world. And there, were, there was lots of different findings, and there were several of them were quite unexpected. I'm just going to highlight three. One is that there are five groups who did not know how to make fire with traditional methods. And, so that, and these, are, um, the, these are cases where the ethnographers have definitely said that people don't know how to make fire. Okay. What they've done in, instead is they collect it from wildfires or they borrow it from the neighbours or they steal it from the neighbours or alternatively they rely on, on uh, you know, sort of industrially produced matches. Okay. Second interesting finding that um, was, we found quite surprising is many groups, a large number of groups for which we could find data would not make new fires uh, when moving camp. Instead, they carried embers with them. Okay. And then the last... Uh, unexpected finding here is, is that ritual was the third most common uh, use of fire after the two really obvious ones, cooking and keeping warm. And it was also uh, the most common reason to make a new fire. Okay? And so these have some interesting implications, these observations, these findings, for thinking about pyrotechnology, fire technology in the Paleolithic. One is that the evidence of fire at a site is not evidence that was fire was made at the site. In fact, given our results, it's probably more likely that fire was made elsewhere and brought to the site. Um, similarly, evidence of fire at a site is not evidence that the occupants of the site could make fire. It's quite possible that they collected the fire from, um, from a wildfire or they borrowed or stole it from the neighbours. And then lastly, um, you know, we tend to think, sort of Paleolithic archaeologists tend to think very much in terms of a focus on survival. Um, but clearly, these results suggest we should be thinking about ritual as an important component of, of uh, fire use in the Paleolithic. Okay? We shouldn't just be obsessed with warmth and cooking. Uh, ritual may have also been an important factor. Um, the third example here uh, is, is, is a bit more out there. Uh, it picks up on this ritual 
idea, and it's about the possibility that there was ritual finger amputation uh, in, the, in, in Ice Age Europe. So there, there's several different publications here. We're focused in this study, um, or set of studies actually, on, on these hand images uh, with incomplete fingers from European Paleolithic rock art sites. There's over 200 of these images um, from 11 different sites, some of them in France, some of them in Spain. They all date, as far as we're, we can figure out, to the Gravettian, so about 27,000 to about 22,000. Um, they vary in, 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 in a number of different dimensions. The hand, the, the hand varies, um, as far as we can figure out. There's both males and females represented. There's, there's different age groups represented. And then, in, most importantly for us, the number of missing figure, finger segments varies. Because this figure sort of summarizes that the dots are the missing segments of the fingers. You can see there's quite a lot of diversity in the, in the finger segments that aren't represented in these, uh, these images. And so the question is, what's the significance of these images and the variation um, in, in the missing finger segments? And there's a, there's a debate that's gone on, still going on, about the significance of these images. So there's one group of people who are arguing that what we're looking at is fingers being, the, the fingers are intact, but they're being folded over. Um, and people have argued that, you know, in some cases, maybe we're looking at some sort of calling card or some sort of signature. Uh, other people have suggested that it's a counting system. Um, probably the most popular hypothesis is that we're looking at sign language. Uh, the, the other hypothesis is that, or the other group of hypotheses, that we're, we're actually looking at finger amputation. Okay, and so there's one group of people arguing that we're looking at uh, sort of um, problems related to things like frostbite, and the other suggestion is that we're looking at ritual uh, amputation. And we wondered what uh, ethnology could shed the light, what light ethnology could shed on this. So we've carried out a couple of reviews uh, now. And it turns out that finger amputation is really surprisingly common. Okay, so we've found so far 181 different ethno-historically documented societies that engage in finger amputation, which is way more than I'd ever imagined it would be. And there are all sorts of different societies, so you know, both foragers and farmers, fully, fully nomadic to sedentary, um, no class distinctions to complex stratification. So it's, a, it's, a, it's really sort of quite broadly distributed. We also found that there's um, at least 18 different motivations for removing fingers, 17 of which involve the removal of healthy fingers, okay, or well, healthy finger segments. So when we looked at the, what we know about the Gravettian hand images, we, we, we think that they're most likely or the most plausible hypothesis is they're actually to do with ritual sacrifice. So sacrificing finger segments to uh, appeal for help from uh, a deity, a supernatural entity. Okay, and what's interesting, beyond just the fact that that might be what's going on, and the fact that it's a surprisingly common activity for, for living humans, or recently living humans, is that this might point to something important about the social dynamics in the Ice Age, in Ice Age Europe. So we can think about finger amputation as being what psychologists refer to as a dysphoric ritual. And there's been a lot of really interesting work recently in psychology on the impact of dysphoric rituals, and specifically the impact of those rituals on group bonding, 
okay, and, and both engaging or going through experiencing dysphoric rituals and watching dysphoric, other people experience dysphoric rituals elevates levels of cooperation within groups. Okay, so we wonder whether these hand images might be pointing to the fact that these groups that are producing them were unusually cohesive, and does that mean that they might have been more effective at hunting or in combat? Okay. I'm just going to wrap up there. I mean, basically, this, this is an appeal for archaeologists and other people interested in the, um, the evolution of human behaviour to take cross-cultural analysis, to take ethnology much more seriously as a, as a, uh, as a methodology. And we should, uh, you know, professors of archaeology should train our students in it. Thanks very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.